Hi, this is James. A few hours after Matt and I recorded Monday morning's show, it was announced that Denzel Washington is coming back to Broadway in The Iceman Cometh, directed by George C. Wolfe. Previews for this limited 14-week engagement begins March 22, 2018, with an opening night set for April 26, 2018 at the Bernard B. Jacobs Theater. It, of course, will be produced by Scott Rudin. Matt and I will bring you a complete story about this in Tuesday's show. Now let's go back to the previously recorded show. Welcome to Today on Broadway for Monday, August 21st, 2017. I'm Broadway World's Matt Tamanini. And I am Broadway star's James Marino. James, before we get started, first off, we want to bid a fond farewell to the cast, crew, and creative team from On Your Feet as it's played its final Broadway performance yesterday. The show will embark on a national tour officially opening after a preview production in upstate New York uh, in Miami next month. James, we haven't gotten a recoupment announcement from this show, but I crunched a few numbers here real quick before we started recording, um, Maybe and maybe a recoupment announcement will come out later today with the grosses, but without knowing that final week's of, week of grosses, the show averaged nearly $850,000 a week in total box office. So I would have to think that that more than covered their weekly nut. I don't know what the, you know, investment was, but you never know. But it had a fairly healthy run. I'm looking forward to seeing the show when it plays Orlando later this fall. I know last week you mentioned that it was a really fun time, so I hope people got to see it during its final week on Broadway. And now, James... Yesterday on This Week on Broadway, our very own Peter Felicia offhandedly mentioned something that I wasn't sure that we would mention on our show, but since he did, I figured it's fair game. You and I have been talking about this for about, I don't know, three weeks to a month uh, off air, and uh, since Peter mentioned Frank DeLella mentioning it, I figure it's kind of fair game for us to discuss. So I just want to kind of lay out these facts before we get into the news, just because it's kind of news, but not really. Anyway, over the past few weeks, James, you and I have been mentioning the really out of left field rumors regarding the casting of Eliza Doolittle and the upcoming Lincoln Center revival of My Fair Lady. Most of those rumors revolved around one actress, Lauren Ambrose. On New York One over the weekend, Frank DeLella mentioned what I have heard from multiple pretty tapped-in sources over the last few weeks, confirming that she, in fact, would lead the Bartlett Shear-directed revival. Ambrose, who will be 40 years old when the revival begins performances in the spring, appeared in Shear's Awaken Sing on Broadway in 2006 and as Queen Mary in 2009's Exit the King, but as far as I can tell, has never done a professional musical, at least not in New York City, that's for sure. Um, however, in 2011, Shear announced that Ambrose would star as Fanny Bryce in a revival of Funny Girl, Opposite Bonnie, Bobby Cannavale as Nikki Arnstein, that revival obviously never happened due to concerns that Ambrose, whose highest profile credit was and remains the HBO dark comedy Six Feet Under, which ran from 2001 to 2005, the concerns were that she just wasn't a big enough star to lead a show. She has also since appeared in a handful of episodes of the X-Files continuation series, and she will return later this season. She's also the lead singer of Lauren Ambrose and the Leisure Class, a ragtime Dixieland jazz band that's played at Joe's Pub a few times. James, I have absolutely zero idea if Miss Ambrose has the soprano to sing Eliza Doolittle. But with every Broadway soprano publicly declaring their desire to play the role, if this proves to be true, as I'm pretty darn sure it is, this has to be one of the most surprising casting moves in recent Broadway history. I don't doubt Bart. Um, he has a pretty good track record of casting things, so I'm not doubting him. It's just... What? 
Yeah, they're going to have to pull a cat out of the hat with this production because uh, certainly everybody who I've talked with about this My Fair Lady revival and mentioned Lauren Ambrose were all like, wow, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, uh, well, I guess we'll have to see, you know? Uh, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll you know, reserve judgment until A, it's officially announced, and B, people have actually seen her. It's just with someone who has no history of musical theater and the music we do know her for is not the soprano that we would associate with Eliza. There's understandably a lot of questions about the casting. And I've always thought of Eliza as being much, much younger. So. Well, I mean, in the, in the script, the, there's no official reference to how old Eliza Doolittle is, but in the script, Colonel Pickering does say that she's around 20. Now that could just be, he's an old man and he doesn't know how old a, you know, a woman is because he just doesn't pay attention. Um, but you're right. You know, a lot of people argued that people like Laura Benanti and Kelly O'Hara, who have both publicly said they want to play this role on Broadway, that they were both too, too old to play the part. Just for clarification, Laura Benanti is about a year and a half younger than Ambrose, and Kelly O'Hare is about a year and a half older than Ambrose. So if they were going to go with someone in and around mid-30s to early 40s, you think you would have gone with, you know, one of the best Sopranos, you know, on Broadway, but guess not. There's a statistics joke in there somewhere. All right. <laughs> First up in the news, the theater community Ugh. wants the loss of three legends. This was a rough week, wasn't it? Yeah, this this show is not going to be a lot of fun because we've got some not exciting things to talk about. But first, since our last show, James, we've lost three entertainment icons. First on Friday, we learned that theatrical producer and general manager Stuart Thompson passed away on Thursday due to complications with, from esophageal cancer. The winner of six Tony Awards, he was one of the people responsible for bringing such shows as Proof, God of Carnage, The Book of Mormon, Jerusalem, The, the Curious Incident of a Dog in the Nighttime, King Charles III, Sweat, and many, many more to Broadway. He is survived by his husband, Joe Baker. Shortly after we learned of Thompson's passing, the Broadway League announced that they would be dimming the marquee lights tomorrow. Tomorrow night, Tuesday night at 6.45 p.m. in his honor, many, many Broadway figures have spoken out, you know, with their condolences to Thompson's family and fond memories of working with him as he was one of the gentlemen of Broadway. So Godspeed, Mr. Thompson. Then yesterday we learned that the comedic legendary actor Jerry Lewis passed away at the age of 91. Lewis appeared on Broadway twice, first in a comedy special production in 1953, and then as a replacement to Victor Garber as Mr. Applegate in Damn Yankees in 1995. In 2012, he directed what was intended to be a Broadway-bound production musical adaptation of his classic film, The Nutty Professor, which featured a score by the late Marvin Hamlish. Lewis was... To say the least, a complicated individual with plenty of his own demons. But all of that aside, he was a towering figure in the entertainment community, and he will be missed. And finally, James, over the weekend, the legendary comedian and civil rights activist Dick Gregory passed away. He didn't have a direct connection to Broadway, but Joe Morton, who uh, won an Off-Broadway Alliance and Lortel Award for playing Gregory in the one-man show Turn Me Loose last season, did tell me when I interviewed him for Broadway World earlier this year that there were discussions about bringing Turn Me Loose to Broadway likely after the final season of Scandal which Morton is a series regular on airs on ABC just for, you know, point of information. The seventh and final season of scandal does begin uh, on ABC on October 5th. So if that is to come, I don't know if Gregory's death will 
um, hurt or help the likelihood of that production, but it was an acclaimed one-man show uh, off-Broadway last year. So, James, like I said, not a fun way to start the show, uh, but it, important to remember all three of these these gentlemen uh, as they pass away over the last week or so. Uh, that's a very good point. Uh, it's, you know, not an exciting way, but we have to remember these these men that were just so important and had such an impact on the industry and uh, on life in general here in the United States. So next up is uh, this week's theatrical schedule. What is coming up for us? Well, not a heavy week in terms of openings and previews and closings, but a few things that we want to point out. First, on Tuesday, August 22nd, Pulitzer Prize winner Suzanne Laurie Parks is the Red Letter Plays uh, profanity alert, fucking A, begins performances at Off-Broadway's Signature Theater. There are actually two shows uh, that comprise the Red Letter Plays. Fing A begins this week, and the second, In the Blood, begins next week. Both plays are modern remixes of the classic Nathaniel Hawthorne, not Haythorne, novel The Scarlet Letter, and that's a crucible reference there. In Fing A, Hester Smith, the revered and reviled local abortionist, hatches a plan to buy her jailed son's freedom, and nothing will deter her from her quest. The show boasts a ridiculously incredible cast, including Brandon Victor Dixon, Mark Kudish, Christine Lottie, and Elizabeth Stanley, amongst many others. Directed by Joe Bonney, Effing A is scheduled to run through October 1st. We'll talk about the other show, In the Blood, during next week's theatrical calendar. Then on Thursday, August 24th, the Manhattan Theater Club's Prince of Broadway officially opens at their Samuel J. Friedman Theater. This limited run is co-directed by the great Harold Prince and Susan Stroman, who also choreographs, and looks back at some of the shows that have been a part of Howe's incredible record-breaking career as both a producer and a director. The who's who of Broadway stars in the cast include Chuck Cooper, Janet DeCall, Emily Skinner, Brandon Uranowitz, Michael Xavier, Tony Yazbek, Karen Ziemba, and more. Tickets are currently on sale for this production through October 22nd. Obviously, extensions are unlikely considering MTC has a subscription schedule already lined up. James, when are you seeing Prince of Broadway? Uh, I think Saturday evening. Uh, okay, yeah, Saturday evening. Come this so hopefully we'll. Okay, so hopefully we'll have some reviews from you, Peter and Michael, and whoever's on the show uh, next week on this week on Broadway on Sunday. Yeah, Peter. Peter and Michael actually already saw it, but we we didn't review it this week because it hasn't opened yet. So by time cool. next week rolls around, we'll, all three of us will have seen it. Perfect. All right. So we'll listen for that on Sunday, August 27th. And speaking of August 27th, there will be three shows closing that I want to discuss. First, the Lincoln Center world premiere production of Dominique Morisot's Pipeline, starring Tasha Lawrence, Namira Smallwood, and the always wonderful Karen Pittman. The show has gotten really fantastic reviews, including from you guys on This Week on Broadway, James. Uh, so if you want to see that one, definitely get over to Lincoln Center to check that one out in this next week. The other two shows closing on Sunday, James, come from the Roundabout Theater Company. The first is the off-Broadway production of Megan Kennedy's Napoli, Brooklyn, directed by Gordon Edelstein. The other show is the Broadway premiere of the play Marvin's Room, starring Janine Garofalo, Lily Taylor, and Celia Weston. The play by the late Scott McPherson served as the Broadway directorial debut for the acclaimed director, Ann Kaufman. Up next for the American Airlines Theater after Marvin's Room heads out is Time in the Conways, which will begin previews on September 14th. If you want to see any of these three shows before they close later this week, get your tickets now. Hopefully they'll all see a nice bump in the uh, box office numbers 
over their final few days of performances. I have to say that I'm I'm really surprised that Pipeline has not gotten more buzz and more excitement around it. Yeah. I thought it was so good. And I wonder if, you, you know, that what's happening up at Lincoln Center Theater is that the bar has been raised so high because I've seen so many good yeah. shows up at Lincoln Center that just seem to have their run and close quietly and never hear from them again. There was a, there was a boxing one that was last uh, The Royale? The Royal. Or the Royal. Yeah. The Royal or Royale, yeah. They're, exactly. Uh, and I, I can't believe that somebody didn't say, let's take that to Broadway right away. It was so good. And this pipeline is also so good. So let's really hope that we see uh, these show up in major... Um, major venues around the world and uh, regional theaters across the U.S. The arts community continues <sighs> its contentious relationship with Trump. Wait, you're saying that the arts community has, is not enjoying the, the Trump arts plan? Oh, James. This is like between our first story of all those legends passing away and this, I just – not a fun show. Anyway, I don't want to belabor this, spend too much time on it, but again, important to discuss. So on Friday, following the president's troubling statements or lack thereof, following the white nationalist terrorist attack in Charlottesville, Virginia – not this past week, but two weekends ago, the members of the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities, coincidentally, all of them holdovers from the Obama administration because Trump hadn't gotten around to appointing anyone else, well, they all resigned en masse. The committee included Tony-winning director George C. Wolfe, Tony-winning Jersey Boys star John Lloyd Young, actor and Obama political appointee Cal Penn, and many others. In their resignation letter, they laid out a very cogent argument as to why they couldn't continue to be associated with the administration, but the best part of the letter is that the six paragraphs in it began with the words reproach, elevating, speaking, ignoring, supremacy, and thanks, forming an acrostic down the left side of the letter that read resist. The White House <laughs> wow, responded saying it's also good. Uh, you gotta love arts people. Um, the White House responded saying that Trump had already retroactively decided to disband the committee as it wasn't an appropriate use of taxpayer funds. But it's interesting that the honorary chair of the committee was First Lady Melania Trump and therefore was actually undersigned on the letter of everyone's resignation. Uh, yeah, that's kind of funny. Anyway, in related news, last week we learned that recently announced Kennedy Center honorees Norman Lear, Lionel Richie, and Carmen De La Valade had publicly stated that they would skip the White House official ceremony and dinner the night before the CBS special of the uh, Kennedy Center honors was filmed. Only LL Cool J and Gloria Estefan have not commented publicly on whether or not they will attend. But as this news broke in similar fashion to the committee disbanding, Trump decided to break up with them first as it was announced that neither he nor the first lady would attend the CBS ceremony. In a statement, the White House said, quote, the president and first lady have decided not to participate in this year's activities to allow the honorees to celebrate without any political distraction. First lady Melania Trump, along with her husband, President Donald J. Trump, extend their sincerest congratulations and well wishes to all of this year's award recipients for their many accomplishments. For what it's worth, James, that's actually a fairly decent rationale for not attending and a surprisingly well-written statement from this White House that doesn't seem to do that very often or well. (sighs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so what I'm doing right now is I was told to count from 10 backwards so not to yell out bad words. And your therapist is uh, earning his or her money then apparently because uh, that's very good of you. All right. I think I'm ready to move on. Hmm. All right. New New details emerge for ongoing search for missing Broadway talent agent Mark Schlegel. Yeah, another story that we really hate to have to talk about, but we really should. Unfortunately, with all the craziness of last week, we didn't talk about this story. It kind of slipped through the cracks, and we really should have talked about this sooner, so we apologize about that. But on Sunday, August 13th, theatrical agent Mark Schlegel disappeared from his home in New Jersey following a family trip and has not been located since. Schlegel, who works for Cornerstone Talent, has an extensive Broadway client base, including such stars as Marion Maisie, Terrence Mann, Jefferson Mays, Lilius White, Bryce Pinkham, Greg Edelman, and many more. He has no history of mental illness, and so far official investigations have turned up nothing to suggest that he would have had reason to leave. According to media reports, Schlegel left home on the 13th in the morning, leaving behind his cell phone, wallet, and personal identification. He was last seen by neighbors carrying a light-colored gift bag and walking, quote, with a purple purpose toward an unknown destination. The police believe due to some left behind bus passes that he might have gone to the city before departing somewhere else. But that's really a fairly thin theory at this point. I'm sure that many of you have seen a lot of information about uh, about Mark um, shared on social media from various members of the Broadway community. But if you do happen to have any information at all regarding Schlegel's whereabouts, please contact police at 201-261-0200. That's 201-261-0200. Okay, and Howard Sherman adds context to the Edward Alby who's, for, who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf debate. Yeah, James, if you remember back in mid-May, there were some stories going around that a small theater in Portland, Oregon called the Shoebox Theater had um, been denied the rights to do Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf because they cast a black man in uh, the role of Nick. This got a lot of attention, but a lot of people were quick to defend the fact that Albee himself had approved um, productions with uh, actors of, of color in all of the other roles, um, but this one specifically drew the ire of his estate. Um, as Howard Sherman writes for the Arts Integrity Initiative, there is a production in Chicago at the um, at the Pulse Theater in Chicago that currently has, if I can find it here, I apologize. Oh, here we go. Black actors as George and Martha and white actors as Nick and Honey. This seemed to kind of go in the face of what we had thought we learned from the shoebox theater controversy in Portland. The Arts uh, Integrity Initiative reached out to the Albee estate and they received this uh, statement in response. Regarding your inquiry, the Albia State gave Chicago's Pulse Theater Edwards' own script edits that the playwright thought could be useful when George and Martha were portrayed by actors of color, as they are in the current Chicago production. Those approved edits by Edward himself were used in an all-African-American production of Wolf at Howard University several years ago. While it has been established that non-Caucasian actors in different combinations have played all the roles in the the play at various times with Edward's approval, he was consistently wary of directors attempting to use his work to provide their own commentary by, for instance, casting only Nick as non-white, which essentially transforms George and Martha into older white racists which is not what Edwards' play is about. So, James, I think if 
that statement right there to me is so clear and concise. I don't understand why they didn't lead with this back in May, because that makes the stance of the Albi estate so much clearer than it was then when it just kind of got muddled in with all of this Facebook stuff and all these going back and forth. To me, that is the most coherent argument as to why they made the move that they did. And I think a lot of people, especially in the arts community, would have been much more accepting of that than this mealy-mouthed, well, we're just trying to serve the author's, you know, intent that we got a few months ago. Yeah. You know, this happens to so many people so often where, you know, (laughs) the next morning after you had that big long debate about something you're like oh and i should have said this so this was the really the answer so the question is is that what happened to the albia state or did albia state look for a more uh covering answer that would have uh you know because i agree with you that explains their position exactly and and if they had to come out with that first uh, i don't you know it seems it like wouldn't it, have blown. It was, it was bungled. Yeah. And, and well, we're between this and the great comment stuff, we're used to things being bungled in terms of publicity and, and, and PR. But, uh, you know, this seems to fit with some of the things we heard at the time. You know, there were talks of even in, in Oregon, there had been productions with a uh, an African-American actress as Martha. So it is and obviously the production at Howard University with an all African-American cast. These are obviously things that predated the shoebox production. So these aren't things that they're just pulling out of thin air and approving after the fact to kind of give themselves some cover. These are in fact, you know, actual productions that have been approved by Albie himself. So it, it seems to fit with the overall narrative. It just, man, was just handled so poorly. And it's too bad because I think it's really soiled uh, the reputation of that show. And maybe Albie um, who just died last year, you know, unnecessarily, I think. And that's, a, that's a shame. And that's on his estate more than it is on him. Oh, absolutely. Um, So it's been, uh, we understand it's a drag of a show today, and it is Monday, and I really want you guys to have a good pick-me-up. So this weekend I listened to uh, Awards Chatter uh, hosted by Scott Feinberg Mm. of The Hollywood Reporter, and he interviewed Stephen Colbert. And uh, Colbert had great, a great talk about his time at Northwestern and um and second and his work at Second City and things like that. It is such a delight this interview. So um if we left you a little bit down today, get over to the Hollywood Reporters uh awards chatter and download Stephen Colbert's interview so that you can have something fun to pick you up on this Monday morning. All right, why don't you get us out of here? All right. Thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Broadway Radio. And you can find me on Twitter at BWWMatt. And subscribe to something like a pop on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And my name is James Marino from BroadwayRadio.com and BroadwayStars.com. It is Monday, but Matt and I will be back and talk with you later this week. 